When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B49 Nemesis He was the mighty bull, the fierce-eyed lion, and his blessings were almost beyond counting. Foremost among them were long life and long rule. But to these the gods had also added the precious gift of good fortune. Decades of peace and unrivaled prosperity had made his land the world's greatest kingdom, and who could say it wouldn't always be so? His brother kings of Mitanni, Babylon, Syria, and Anatolia had given him the gifts of wives from among their royal daughters, and he'd shown his station above them all by denying them the same honor. As quoted in a letter of the Kassite king Kadashman Enlil I, From time immemorial, no daughter of the king of Egypt is given to anyone. And let them grumble. He had what he needed, a beloved great wife of Egyptian blood, who'd already given him two sons. The first, named after the boy's grandfather, Thutmose, had been taken before his time. But the second boy, to all indications, would thrive. Like the king, he was named Amanahatpa, Amun is satisfied, or, more conventionally, Amenhotep. And just as Amenhotep III was presiding over a golden age, it was clear that Amenhotep IV would continue down the same path. Like all great kings, Amenhotep III prepared his ba and ka for eternity by building himself a mortuary temple on the Nile's west bank near Thebes. Though it was, in its day, the largest ever built, it was also poorly sited. And just two short centuries after his death, Nile floodwaters left it in ruins. All that remained was a pair of statues, each depicting Amenhotep III and standing some sixty feet tall. 
13 centuries after the king's death, and three years after the death of Cleopatra, a massive earthquake struck near Thebes and fractured one colossus, which began the string of travelers' tales of the statue beginning to sing. The sound, when it came, occurred at sunrise, which led to the statue's association with an Ethiopian king named Memnon the son of the goddess of the dawn and defender of Troy. For the next few centuries, under Roman rule, the Colossi of Memnon were a tourist attraction, not too different from the role they play today. But if you visit the statue and can't hear the singing, don't fault the ancient sources. Instead, please direct your complaints to Queen Zenobia. According to historian Pat Southern, Zenobia ordered the statue's repair, and afterwards it never spoke again. Of course, this wasn't some weird one-off, but an integral part of Zenobia's efforts to restore Egyptian monuments. She was queen of Egypt and queen of Palmyra, and wanted both lands to prosper. Existing Palmyrene colonies in Egypt, such as those at Coptos and Berenice, would be leveraged to increase the wealth of Zenobia's empire. As Southern reports, the Palmyrene merchants were already familiar with the Indian ports of Barigaza and Barbarikon, and would simply sail there from the Red Sea instead of the Persian Gulf. The use of these long-distance trade routes through Egypt, and the shorter ones from Arabia to the Red Sea, would liberate the Palmyrenes from dependence on good relations with the Persians. Queen Zenobia was forced to address the sticky issue of Roman governance. With the prefect Probus killed or suicided, she temporarily filled his role with an official named Marcellinus. Then, in the spring of 271, she appointed a new Egyptian prefect, a former governor of Arabia Petraea named Statilius Ammianus. Ammianus had held his previous role at the height of Odonathus's power meaning he was likely well-trusted by Zenobia. Just like the conquest of Egypt itself, appointing its prefect was a clear act of treason, and there's no indication she bothered to check with Aurelian. With a proxy installed to govern Egypt, Zenobia continued to rule from Palmyra. It's likely she had a royal palace, probably built under Odonathus, but it's never been found, and it's likely buried beneath Diocletian's baths. According to Zosimus, there was also a royal residence in Antioch, likely established by Odonathus, and a spring palace across the Euphrates in Osroene. When it comes to the matter of Zenobia's court, opinion is pretty divided. But Warwick Ball has what I think is the most realistic take. Tradition has surrounded Zenobia with a glittering salon of poets, rhetoricians, and philosophers. But 
Apart from Cassius Longinus, no other scholar of any note is definitely attested at Zenobia's court. He also notes that Palmyra did not compare with other eastern centers of learning, such as Edessa or Tyre or Gadara, let alone Antioch or Alexandria. But since he was the court's most famous figure, let's talk about Cassius Longinus. Longinus taught philosophy and rhetoric at Athens, where contemporaries called him a living library and a walking museum. He'd been teaching at Athens for nearly 40 years when the city was attacked by the Heruli. This was in 267, the same year that Odenathus fought Heruli pirates in Anatolia. The attack apparently motivated Longinus to relocate to the east. Interestingly, he was a native of Emesa, but for a philosopher seeking a cushy retirement, the place to be was Palmyra. Duly impressed by his stellar credentials, Zenobia soon engaged Longinus to be tutor to her son, Vabalathus. According to Southern, another member of Zenobia's court may have been Nicostratus of Trapezus, a historian who wrote an account of events from the time of Philip the Arab to the capture of Valerian, rounding it off with the victory of Odenathus over Shapur. Southern also notes Callinicus of Petra, who wrote his History of Alexandria around the same time that the Palmyrenes captured Egypt, and dedicated it to Cleopatra, a likely reference to Zenobia. Richard Stoneman even suggests that the author of the 13th Sibylline Oracle may have been present at Zenobia's court where I'm sure he specialized in creeping everyone out. Another figure associated with Zenobia was the Bishop Paul of Samosata. Not to get mired in Christian minutia, but Paul preached a doctrine called monarchianism, which claimed God was God and Jesus was mortal, though infused with the concept of the Logos. He basically pitched a self-improvement theory, where Jesus slowly perfected himself all the way from man to God. But the Orthodox powers, such as they were, labeled monarchianism a heresy, and in 269 they deposed him as Bishop of Antioch. Except, well, not so fast. Paul apparently appealed to Zenobia, who expressed her support for him keeping his role. According to Southern, she likely did this in the interest of religious tolerance. But either way, Paul refused to step down, and the schism divided the church. If Zenobia really did weigh in, it's a pretty significant moment since it may mark the first time a Roman ruler got involved in Christian politics. Just to show she didn't play favorites, Zenobia also welcomed the Manichees. For the past three decades, the religion founded by the prophet Mani had been spreading both east and west, 
a potent rival to both Christianity and Persian Zoroastrianism. Manny himself was 55 and still residing in the Persian court, patronized by King Hormizd as he'd been by his father, Shapur. But while he'd stayed put, his many disciples took his faith into Syria and beyond. Warwick Ball claims there's even some evidence that Zenobia converted to Manichaeism. But Richard Stoneman strikes a more cautious note. Of Zenobia's own leanings, we can really say little. Perhaps she was as eclectic as her predecessor, Julia Mamaya, who came from the priestly family of the son at Emesa, but nonetheless summoned Origen to instruct her in Christian doctrine. A wise ruler will not neglect any customs that seem appropriate to her people. Surely the water oracle of Yaribal at Palmyra's Efka Spring continued to be consulted. If Zenobia had consulted some oracle on the subject of her next move, she'd be justified in requesting a total refund. Because in the spring of 271, for reasons that are totally inexplicable, Zenobia ordered her general Zabdus to conquer Anatolia. Not to raid and plunder, like our friend Shapur, but to claim the region for Palmyra. Everything Zenobia had done up till now, up to and including the conquest of Egypt, had been done in the name of Palmyrene defense or prosperity. But this is the moment, at least to me, when it all starts sliding off the rails. Okay, so let's talk economics first. As Southern points out, Anatolia was not noted for Palmyrene commercial activity, nor for trading on the same scale as the other eastern provinces. The defense argument also falls flat. I mean, holding the province of Cappadocia might make some strategic sense. But according to Zosimus, the Palmyrenes also invaded Galatia and Bithynia Pontus, the central portion of Anatolia approaching the Black Sea coast. Which, I mean, if you want to spend all your time fighting the Goths, then yeah, great plan. But to any kind of rational observer, it's just overextension and hubris. I mean, if you really want to push things, there's that dubious link to Antiochus IV. So maybe she was trying to recover Seleucid territory? But if so, there were two big problems. First, while some Egyptians might actually miss the Ptolemies, no one absolutely no one missed the Seleucids. The final century before their fall had been mainly defined by civil war, by which time they'd completely worn out their welcome. Second, as Shapur discovered, the regional math had changed, and any attempt to hold the territory was practically doomed to failure. Rome was preoccupied, but far from dead. 
and the surest way to get its attention was to dust off ancient claims to Anatolia. The only argument that really makes sense is blatant opportunism. Taking control of as much as she could while Rome was otherwise occupied. Which might still work if Zenobia was able to convince the provinces that they'd be better off under her rule. Odenathus had helped defend the region against Heruli pirates, which may have elicited some goodwill among the governors and legates. But, as historian Pat Southern reports, Zenobia failed to engender loyalty and enthusiasm from the military or the populace, which basically committed Palmyrene forces to a bitter, intractable campaign. A campaign that, sadly, they'd still be prosecuting when the Romans finally responded. But, of course, in its early stages, things seemed to be going well. Well enough for General Zabdus to return to Palmyra by August. During his absence, surprising news had emerged from the Persian capital. King Hormizd, the son of Shapur, was dead. After 18 years as king of Armenia, he barely managed one as Shahanshah, and his actions during that year are hard to nail down. He'd at least had time to honor his father by erecting the Kaaba Yezartosht, the large stone cube holding the great inscription of King Shapur I. He may have also built great cities, including Ram Hormizd and Hormizd Ardashir, and may have won a victory over the Sogdians. Nobody but nobody gives the slightest hint of how he may have met his end. We only know that the succession didn't go as planned. Hormizd had a son named Hormuzdak, who likely expected to succeed his father just like Hormizd had with Shapur and Shapur with his own father, Ardashir. We've also noted that heir apparents were typically made great king of Armenia, but that role was still held by Hormuzdak's uncle, Narsi. Oddly enough, for whatever reason, both Hormuzdak and Narsi were elbowed aside and the throne was claimed instead by Prince Bahram. Bahram, as we mentioned previously, was Shapur's eldest son, and had been ruling the province of Gilan on the shores of the Caspian. And while we don't know why Shapur passed him over, or how he now ended up on top, one aspect of his rule may shed some light. It was under Bahram that the Magus Kartir, the zealous priest of Ahura Mazda, would be finally, fully, and brutally let off his leash. He'd soon be elevated to Mobed Kartir, the grand priest of Zoroastrianism, and given free reign to persecute other religions. This was a pretty major shift in the realm of Persian governance. First off, it abandoned the religious tolerance of both the Achaemenids and the Sassanids. 
And second, it ended the monopoly on power once held by the Persian king. Doing so suggested that King Bahram may have owed Kartir a favor, possibly forgetting the religious establishment to back his claim to the throne. Either way, the deed was done, and Bahram was Shahanshah, apart from the usual transition period needed to firm things up. Which, for Zenobia, meant even more time to neglect her eastern frontier. At the same time, her intelligence from the west didn't flag any imminent threats. Unsurprisingly, since taking the throne, Aurelian had been fully occupied, mainly with countering waves of Vandals, Sarmatians, Chathungi, and Marcomanni. The Marcomanni affair was a pretty near thing, as recorded in the Historia Augusta. Aurelian, since he wished, by massing his forces together, to meet all the enemy at once, suffered such a defeat near Placentia that the Empire of Rome was almost destroyed. Gibbon then continues that the fury of the Marcomanni charge was irresistible. But at length, after a dreadful slaughter, the patient firmness of the emperor rallied his troops and restored, in some degree, the honor of his arms. From how he's described in the ancient sources, patient firmness is kind of an understatement. The Historia Augusta claims that Aurelian exercised the greatest severity and a discipline that had no equal, being extremely ready to draw his sword. It also reports that, because of this trait, the soldiers gave him the nickname of Sword in Hand. It goes on to mention that he was, moreover, so feared by the soldiers that after he had once punished offenses in the camp with the utmost severity, no one offended again. The theme continues in the Historia's telling of what happened after the battle. When the war with the Marcomanni was ended, Aurelian, overviolent by nature and now filled with rage, advanced to Rome, eager for the revenge which the bitterness of the revolts had prompted. Though at other times a most excellent man, he did in fact employ his power too much like a tyrant. For in slaying the leaders of the revolts, he used too bloody a method of checking what should have been cured by milder means. What revolts, you ask? Well, there were a few. Zosimus records that several members of the Senate, being at this time accused of conspiring against the emperor, were put to death. And... At the same time, Epitimius, Urbanus, and Domitianus were likewise suspected as innovators and were immediately apprehended and punished. We know very little about these guys, but they likely commanded local troops. At around the same time, Zosimus notes that Rome, which before had no walls, was now surrounded with them. This work was begun in the reign of Aurelianus and was finished by Probus. 
The Aurelian walls were meant to replace the 4th century BC Servian walls and enclosed the hills of Rome, the fields of Mars, and a portion of the Tiber's left bank. They were visible proof that the legions alone could no longer protect the capital. And at the moment, the empire was so broke that Aurelian could spare neither men nor gold. So the wall's construction was left to the people of Rome. With the rebels put down and the capital mobilized, Aurelian marched off for the Danube. The province of Dacia, to the north of the river, had been won by the hand of Optimus Trajan. And while Dacian gold had funded his reign, the province had become a liability. It was hilariously exposed and difficult to defend, and Aurelian decided it had to go. But not before taking two critical steps to make the withdrawal more palatable. First, he crossed the Danube in force and slew the Gothic leader, Canabaudes, ensuring that when the Romans left, it'd be on Roman terms. Second, he renamed a portion of Moesia, south of the river, as Dacia Aureliana, to claim, with an almost Trumpian logic, that Rome hadn't really abandoned Dacia, they just, you know, kind of moved it. All this had happened during Aurelian's first year, and none of it seemed too unusual. Like Gallienus and Claudius Gothicus, Aurelian was playing defense, countering invaders, building walls, and abandoning risky provinces. And if he'd had some military success, well, so would Claudius Gothicus, and fate had still found a way to strike him down. No matter how good Zenobia's intelligence, given the nature of her life experience, she may have been slow to fully realize the magnitude of the threat. Aurelian came from humble origins. His father had been a peasant farmer, and he joined the army in 235 at around the age of 20. That was the year that Alexander was murdered, meaning his entire service in the Roman army had taken place in the crisis years. Since then, Aurelian had known little but military conflict and slow advancement, under Gordian and Philip and Valerian and Gallienus and countless transient usurpers. Gallienus had given him a senior role in his fast-reaction cavalry unit, a position he'd used to back the conspirators in Gallienus's murder. After as many decades of service, Aurelian realized that Rome was broken. The recent split among three empires was just the most visible sign. And, like the later emperor Diocletian, he knew it would take truly drastic steps to get it back on track. After completing the Roman withdrawal from Dacia, Aurelian took his troops southeast to winter in Byzantium. The last time we really discussed Byzantium was way back during the mid-190s, when the city endured a two-year siege by the forces of Septimius Severus. 
it had eventually been taken, sacked, stripped of its walls, and bound to Perinthos. But in the end, it was just too strategic to leave in the doghouse for long. Just like with Antioch, it was that paragon of mercy, the Emperor Caracalla, who repaired its buildings and restored its status. Likely for not much better reason than a spiteful swipe at his father. Still, Byzantium was hardly complaining, and even honored its dubious benefactor by changing its name to Byzantium Antonina. The next few decades of relative peace allowed the city to mostly recover. But during the reign of Severus Alexander, it began to find itself vulnerable. Byzantium's wealth and lack of walls made it the target of Gothic raiders, who'd remained an on-again, off-again threat right down to the current day. So, all things considered, an imperial army wintering in the city was a pretty welcome development. Unless, oh, say your name was Zenobia, and you'd been taking some questionable actions. No matter what she thought of Aurelian, the scenario was pretty unnerving. A Roman emperor encamped with his army right across the straits from Anatolia. At the same time, Palmyrene forces were likely wintering in Ancyra, the capital of Roman Galatia, just a few days' march away. It's reasonable to assume that Queen Zenobia sent a few embassies across the straits to praise the emperor for the year's successes and try to gauge his intentions. However Aurelian might have received them is totally unknown. He may have decided to put them at ease and confirm he was only wintering in the region before returning to Rome. He may have opened negotiations about the role Palmyra might play in his own personal vision of the Roman Empire. Or, in keeping with his bellicose nature, he may have leveled an ultimatum, or even sent the embassies back with a declaration of war. Either way, it's basically moot, because... No matter what was said or offered, Aurelian's actual intentions were soon very clear. Roman soldiers were flooding Byzantium, and preparations were underway for a massive campaign in the spring of the following year. No one present could mistake the signs or misjudge the likely target. Off in her distant capital of Palmyra, Zenobia shed her final illusions and began preparing for the inevitable conflict to come.